just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Loki Podcast with John Ball from Present Influence. This week, I am very happy to have a great guest with me in the form of Jason Reed. Jason is not just an entertaining professional speaker. He also teaches entrepreneurs and experts and sales teams how to create presentations and tell stories uh, with intention and impact, helping them turn their audience into clients. One of the things that I found particularly interesting is Jason has a very, uh, very good background in TV production and editing. I want to hear, definitely want to hear more about that. But let me first of all, properly welcome to the show, Jason Reed. Hi, Jason. Hey, John, how are you? I am fantastic, and it's great to be speaking with you today. So thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to come and chat with us. I'm expecting this is going to be a lot of fun for both us and the listeners. Well, that's the plan, Jason. So let's hope <laughs> that it goes that way. <laughs> Excellent. So to get things started, Jason, tell us a little bit about your background and what it is you're doing right now. Yeah, so I've actually been a professional storyteller pretty much all of my adult life. I, um, I started writing for magazines when I was about 16 years old. Uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I was in the middle of a journalism career that wasn't really taking off. So I started to experiment and do some screenwriting too. So I went back and forth to Hollywood for a while. Um, unfortunately, I neither became rich nor famous down there, but it was a great experience. And I got to learn from some amazing people. And then I came back. I had a, a, a career in television journalism as a writer and producer and eventually at the executive level. But the one thing that I always loved doing was... Um, helping people tell really impactful stories. So when I became an entrepreneur, uh, at first I was a business coach and I used speaking as a way to get clients. And it was kind of funny because that was probably what I was best at. So suddenly I had all of these clients and I'm figuring out, okay, what do I do with them now? <laughs> and I recognized that they needed clients as well. So I started teaching them how to speak. I started doing workshops and that sort of thing. And then I realized that obviously that was what I was, I was really good at. And I've been doing that now for about seven years uh, as well. The other thing that I've been doing more and more of is working with professional speakers, keynote speakers um, on their stories, as well as, again, working with organizations and sales teams and stuff, figuring out, okay, if you have a message that you want to get sent out to the public, how do we package that in a story that will entertain, be interesting, and have that powerful message? In, in my own life and work as a public speaker, both professionally and, and, and for fun as well, in my Toastmasters club, certainly, storytelling is undoubtedly a critical part of engagement and really, I think, possibly one of the most important parts. And I, talk a, I like to talk a lot about influence and persuasion and particularly in, in relation to presentation skills. And I, I do think that storytelling is really one of the things that we must really crack and master and get better at as we as we progress through this to to become more compelling speakers to be more engaging with an audience and to really pull people in and, and have that influence have people in your sway nothing does it quite like storytelling exactly i hear obviously a lot of speakers uh because speaking as a as a hobby as well as my profession i go to a lot of conferences and there's nothing worse than feeling like you're being lectured at <laughs> Right. Where story, stories are really nice because, you know, they're, they're sort of a form of, of soft power, of soft influence in that it works on both your conscious and your subconscious. And, you know, you can get people to your way of thinking 
by allowing them to figure it out themselves through the story. What you're really doing is sort of kind of guiding them through the uh, story and hopefully they'll come to the same conclusion you do at the end, but they'll feel it's their idea that they've sold themselves rather than you selling them. And this is something that goes back, you know, thousands and thousands of years to almost really sort of the kind of the beginning of our species as human, human beings is, you know, stories were a way even before our species could talk that we could convey pieces of complex information in a very simple form that was easy to understand. And I think that's why stories still hold sway. They're the most basic form of communication. If you tell a story simply and effectively, it's probably the easiest way that people can understand something. And as I've mentioned, it's also a great tool for influence as well. Yeah, and if you think, if you think about it logically and in, in a historical context, we have only really had uh, printed books for a very short period of our history. And so before that, most uh, education and, and history was transmitted orally in stories. Mm-hmm. And so we have a they have a, a very rich tradition of storytelling, and I think um, I've seen it as being one of the one of the things I was maybe a bit concerned that was disappearing or maybe becoming a bit too bland as our imaginations get uh, replaced by having it all given to us on uh, most media platforms now. But I see it really uh, rising back up again and that people really still want to hear the stories. They still want to hear unique stories, personal experiences, things that they relate to, not just the Hollywood stories and, uh, and the things that we generally get fed on TV. Yeah, you know, I really get a sense that people are looking, whether it's consciously or not, to re-explore their own humanity. And part of the challenge with technology, particularly technology and entertainment, is, you know, if you go to a movie now, so much of it is CGI and blue screen or green screen. And I think people actually are craving the human element of stories. And I think that's why stories personal stories have become so popular is in some ways we're not getting enough of them, you know, and in it's, it's particularly interesting because I'm in, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and we have a huge amateur speaking and storytelling explosion here. We have several different storytelling and speaking events every month put on by different people. Uh, there's some that get literally 300 people, well, did before COVID-19, would get almost 300 people um, packed into a club every single month to hear people tell stories. And that's just one of maybe six or seven events in that month within the city. So uh, I'm not sure what's happening in other cities, but I know here storytelling, that sort of very personal form of storytelling is exploding. People love it. They feel like they're part of a community. They feel like they're being enriched. That, that's really interesting to hear. And I'm going to have to check out whether there is anything like that going on in Valencia, because uh, the only way, the only place I come into contact with that at the moment would be through, uh, through the Toastmasters organization, perhaps. And maybe just through general networking where people are naturally sharing their stories mm-hmm. anyway, but, but in an intentional way, that would be, if it doesn't exist, I might have to have a think about starting something up here as well. Because that, that honestly sounds amazing. And I do think that the storytelling is, uh, isn't just a, a talent, it is something we can all learn and get better at. When, when you start working with somebody on creating story or getting better at storytelling, where do you start? Well, I usually start figuring out, you know, I'm a big believer in keeping the end in mind. So what I want to know from my client is who their audience is, number one, which is really important. I mean, you know, we all know as storytellers, we have to craft a story their audiences are going to relate to. And the other thing is, you know, what, what is it that the storyteller wants out of telling the story? And what's the message that the audience needs to hear? And these are kind of two different things. Um, You know, for business people in particular, you know, one of the things that a story might do is is help overcome an objection to sale or overcome an objection to people maybe, say, for instance, hiring a business coach. So that's what the speaker has in mind in telling the story. But then, you know, the audience doesn't care about that. The audience wants to know what's in it for them. So that third question is, what is the message we want to give to the audience? And I think when it comes to purposeful storytelling as a speaker, we have to figure out those things first before we can tell a very powerful story. 
because the power is going to be not just in the detail and the entertainment, but also in that message. So knowing what that message is, is hugely important. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever studied neurolinguistic programming or what, what thoughts you have on that. But if you, if you have, one of the things that I came into contact through learning and, and attending some of those kinds of courses was the idea of using metaphor and, and how it uh, has a hypnotic quality to it. And certainly when you're, uh, if you're designing like hypnosis uh, and uh, or visualization, the, the story part of it is a very critical part of that as well, that it pulls people in and that you can do coaching work, counseling work through telling stories as well. And that, um, that actually is in many ways more powerful than just trying to work through something consciously because people find their own meanings and make their own connections. And, and I guess that's a similar kind of thing to what, what you're saying about that you need to create for your audience, that they have some metaphor that they can project themselves into and make their own connections, but you're kind of going to guide them to what those connections are. Is that something? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I think within something like NLP, particularly if we look at uh, Ericksonian hypnosis, which you know part of NLP comes from, yeah. Um, yeah that idea of of using stories to connect with the subconscious is very powerful, and metaphors in particular, you know when you think of how long they've been around. I mean at the at the start of you know kind of Western writing, if we go back to you know the, the Greeks and the Romans, I mean you have things like Aesop's Fables, which are still around and they're still often taught to children because those very simple metaphors can really teach powerful lessons and have powerful messages that are easy to understand. So I think you're absolutely right on, on both of those, of those levels, making things easier to understand, but also connecting to the subconscious. I think stories are, are, are definitely really important to do that. Once you get people into the imagination space, then a lot of the barriers start going down. So, you know, and, you know, we even see that, in more modern forms. So, uh, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember a, a show like the original Twilight Zone, one of the things Rod Serling, the creator, did was tackle all sorts of very controversial at the time uh, messaging, you know, things, things around uh, racism and working together and, and all sorts of other stuff that would have been very difficult to, to tackle straight on. But by creating this sort of fantasy world of what if and imagine, it made it much more palatable for people, lowered their, um, their objections, lowered their, their, their psychological barriers, so to speak, so that that information and those ideas could better, you know, penetrate their brain, penetrate their subconscious. And I think made for not only effective storytelling, but, you know, ultimately a better society as people understood those lessons. Yeah, undoubtedly, we, we all have story experiences because uh, the world is full of stories. And, and we grow up with them. You know, I, I can even now remember uh, as a kid, I always wanted my parents to read stories uh, when I was old enough to, uh, and imaginative enough to start creating them. I used to create stories for my cousins when I was a kid and just make, make <laughs> up uh, fairy tales and things like that. Sometimes they'd be a bit mad. Um, I think I still have recordings of them somewhere, but they're on cassette, so who can play that? But uh, but yeah, I mean, the stories are a part of our lives instinctively. And, and as you said before, historically, throughout all the way back, we've been telling stories. And, and we do have a very deep connection with them. You, you know, you mentioned before about um, that with, uh, with a client, you start working with the purpose of a story, which is, I think, a good place to start. When you know what your intention is with the story, how do you then start going about constructing one? Yeah. So once we know what the purpose is, usually the other thing, you know, when I'm working with clients, it's often a, a true life story. So the next question is finding a story from their life that's appropriate, whether it's a personal story or maybe them helping a client. Uh, and then once we find that, the challenge, particularly if they're telling a personal story, is figuring out, okay, what do we leave in? What do we take out? Where do we start? Where do we end? Right? I think a lot of people can, can relate to those sort of questions. So what I really like to do is boil the story down to its, its basic arc. So you know, if, if we look at storytelling, there's 
two arcs, one that looks like a smiley face, one that looks like a frowny face. Uh, the frowny face one's what we call a tragedy. We tend not to use that quite as much in speaking because, you know, in the end, everybody dies. <laughs> but for the sort of smiley face story, what I usually do is take my clients through sort of five steps where, you know, the first thing we do is set up who the character is. So even if the character is them, we have to tell the audience, okay, who is this person? Get a sense of maybe what time in their life it is, what it is they want, which is really important. Then, you know, what we always have to have is some sort of a problem because stories involve drama. So we go from setting up the person and what they want to a problem. The problem tends to end up getting worse. At some point at the bottom of the arc, there's this turning point where things are like really bad and the character decides to do something different. They either get help or they reframe their problem or they approach things a certain way with a different strategy. And whatever that thing is that they start doing, we'll call insight, right? So there's, there, there's some sort of growth there where they realize, okay, we have to do something different. And then picture that insight, drawing that character back up the arc to the, back to the top of the smiley face again, to where they actually get what they want. So it's, it's really simple, but if, if we think of the story in terms of those five steps, setup, problem, turning point, insight, and conclusion, it's then becomes very easy to figure out what are the crucial points of the story? Where do we start and where do we end? Once we have that, we can tell the story relatively quickly. Like I, I do an exercise where once we have that figured out, I get my client to tell me that story um, in less than 10 sentences. So it's basically one to two sentences for each point. Once you know that backwards and forwards, you can then tell that story. If you want, you can make it longer by adding detail, or if you need to communicate it quickly and powerfully, you can do that too. But what I find is once you have that, that foundation down, that structure, then you can really concentrate. The next step is adding the entertainment value and adding the humor and adding the drama and adding the details, which become much easier if you know, again, what the foundation is first. And would there be particular techniques or strategies that you would use to add that in? Yeah, so I'm a really big believer in scenes. So as we go through school, as we're taught storytelling, one of the big things we're taught is to show, don't tell. And, you know, when I go through this basic structure, it's basically kind of telling. It's getting the client to understand, okay, this happens, this happens, this happens, and this happens. But that becomes very boring. It ends up being like a laundry list if you're telling a long story of just, well, this happened, and then this other thing happened, and then this other thing happened. So what I like to do is figure out um, – where's the most drama or the most interest in this story and then build a scene, which is almost like a one person play where the storyteller stops telling the story and starts showing the story, you know, so suddenly they, they, they go, you know, so here I am at the airport. It's February. I look outside, it's snowing and they set this scene up and then you have their character interacting with other characters um, there's dialogue, so rather than giving people the gist of what someone says, they say it as they actually would. So instead of saying, you know, I went to my boss's office and uh, went to open the door and the assistant told me not to bother him, sounds very different to, I walked over to the door, I put my hand to the doorknob and suddenly there was this voice yelling, hey, you, get out of there, right? So that's dialogue. That's like the emotion that really sort of sets the scene, sort of showing, not telling. Um, and setting these type of scenes where we have details, we have characters, and you're doing almost like a play uh, is, I think, what really separates an entertaining story that people are going to go away loving to just a story that is told and is maybe effective at getting an idea across, but doesn't necessarily stick. Mm. That's, that's interesting. Are, are there uh, any sort of types of stories that people should try and avoid and stay clear of? That's a, that's a really good, really good question. Um, you know, sometimes things are just, uh, there's just subjects sometimes that are, are off-putting to people. And no matter how effective they are on one hand, if they offend people on the other, again, what, what's happening is rather than lowering those barriers, those barriers are rising. So 
an example I use, and this is a, a sales example, but it could be used in it for any sort of story, was uh, a few years ago, I was out with uh, some friends of mine and they were um, at this plumbing store and they were redoing their bathroom. So they had, you know, bought a toilet and a new shower and everything else. And the sales guy came over and said, you know, can I interest you in a bidet? And my friend was like, well, yeah, but I don't kind of understand, you know, what it what it does, how it works, why you would want to use it, because this is North America, we generally don't, don't use those. So the guy tried to explain it, didn't work. My friend was still, yeah, yeah, I don't really get how we can use this. And then I heard the salesman say, okay, I'll tell you a story. I used to work in the prisons, and I'm a big guy, and it used to get very hot in there. And I could tell from the way the story was setting up, it was going to be a story that I didn't want to hear. <laughs> so, so I actually left at that point, went to another, another part of the store. And when I came back, my friends were just beat red. And they ended up leaving the store without buying anything because this guy had told them a story about how he used the bidet when he was a prison guard. And it was just, it was crazy. It's just, they, they looked at me and said, yeah, I really didn't need to hear that story. So, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, telling stories that are, you know, people may, may view as, as, as kind of gross or controversial. Uh, there's times where they work, but there's a lot of times where they don't too. So just again, keep in mind the audience and keep in mind the energy that you want in the room. You know, if you're trying for a light energy, upbeat energy in the room, don't tell the really downer story. Sure. It's funny, uh, you just mentioned that whenever you ask, and this may be unique to British people, I honestly don't know, but you ask a British person to, uh, to tell a funny story off the cuff, and if they're not used to telling stories, generally it's going to be about a time that they crap their pants or wet themselves or <laughs> got caught in got caught in some sort of embarrassing uh, sexual act or something like that probably not the best kind of stories to share really uh, and yet those are the ones that people almost immediately go to and I, re I remember my very first sort of speaker training where we were given this kind of exercise and my story was about like my first interview when I went to work for one of the big airlines in the UK mm -hmm. and uh, that I'd uh, accidentally managed to uh, pee through the seat of the uh, uh, and all over my suit trousers and had to dry them, take them off and put them <laughs> under the hand dryer. Uh, so I'm standing in a train station, people coming and going, and I'm standing there in a jacket with holding my trousers, trying <laughs> this is well, yeah, kind of a funny situation, but actually when it comes to sort of hearing that in a, in a told as a story, it's like, oh, it's a bit, I'm <laughs> 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 not, not sure about that. And I, and I totally get that. And yet that is such a natural tendency to go for especially for maybe English, certainly British people, uh, it's a very natural tendency to go towards those kind of stories. And I do think it's probably a good idea to not necessarily go towards that unless it really is appropriate. Yeah. And, you know, I think you bring up a really good point here that we haven't talked about, and that is the role of culture. So, uh, again, I'm a huge believer in really understanding your audience. So um, the because I, I know a lot of people in Britain, I've spent a lot of time in Britain, I, I understand the, the mindset more than more North Amer most North Americans do. Right. And there is, there's, there's also a certain, a certain edge to British stories that tend not to be the same as, as American stories. So Americans tend to be more um, what I'll call sort of sincere. It's like, and not, not the British people aren't, but there's a cynicism um, that's sort of lacking for a lot of people in the United States. It's very evident in Britain and Canada's kind of in the middle. Um, so it's, it's sort of under, yeah, you know, so it, it, it's sort of understanding that, right? So if I was telling a story to a bunch of sort of kind of working class British people, I'd probably tell a story differently than I would if it was a bunch of American business people. Um, and then you get into the Eastern cultures, uh, if you have a predominantly uh, a Chinese or Japanese audience, and things that may work well in the United States or in America and in Britain, things like self-deprecating stories just in general, 
tend not to work quite as well with those audiences because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're not used to self-deprecating stories. And rather than viewing the speaker as, oh, this is someone I can relate to because they're telling a self-deprecating story, they sort of think, why should I listen to this person? They make mistakes. That's, that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about that kind of thing in, in this capacity. Uh, and that is a fascinating area. There's cultural differences. And, uh, and I think certainly for, for people who, who may have or may be wanting to appeal to, to a wider audience, those are things that are totally worth considering. And if you do have a, if you're targeting people in the UK or the US that you can make some sort of maybe small, not really necessarily big shifts, but some slight shifts in your approach and your style that might just make it even more attractive to that audience. Like yeah. And, you know, I, and here's the uh, thing. I, I, I actually really like self-deprecating stories. And, and again, I find for a North American audience, it, it, makes, um, it makes you seem more approachable. Um, so I'm actually going to tell one here because it, it directly relates. I, about four or five years ago, I was doing uh, presentations for a financial company here in, in Canada at their various offices. And the first couple that I did contained some baby boomer references, you know, references to the Flintstones and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and stuff. And I happened to have audiences that were like just the right age. And it's like, they were really into it. And I thought, okay, I'll put, I started putting more and more of those pop culture, North American pop culture references or very baby boomerish into my talk. And then suddenly, you know, about three or four offices in, I went to this other office just north of Toronto, and that area is predominantly Asian. And when people came in and they started speaking, I started realizing that not only did most of these people not grow up in North America, uh, they weren't baby boomer age and, you know, they didn't have the same references. For a lot of them, English was a second language. And here I was with this talk and these slides that were almost all North American baby boomer references. And as I was going through it, I could just tell I was bombing, like nothing I was saying (laughs) was making any sense to these people. And I had this horrible flop sweat going on. It was just, but it's one of those things where when you speak often enough, I don't know if this happens to you, John, it's almost like there's a third person, like you're speaking, but you're also kind of viewing yourself from a distance. So as I'm viewing myself from a distance, I'm thinking about how funny this is because it's obviously totally the wrong talk for the wrong audience. And as soon as I was done and everybody left, I turned to my assistant and I just started laughing and I laughed for about three or four minutes because I just knew that I totally screwed this thing up by not taking into account that there might be a different, you know, cultural dynamic amongst the audience that I wasn't used to. A a powerful learning that also gives you a great story as well. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's fantastic. I like that kind of thing. Great. Now, in terms of what we talked a bit about what perhaps doesn't work or should be avoided, what does work? What kind of things should should be aimed for in terms of the type of story or style of story that... Mm -hmm that work well, particularly in sales environments. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned sales in particular because, you know, I'm of the view for most speakers, all of us sell. And even if we're not selling a a product or a service, we're selling an idea. So, you know, our talks obviously should have a point of view. So that's one of the things that we're selling. And one of the biggest challenges when selling anything, even an idea, is there are obviously certain objections that people are going to have, and they're often very predictable objections. So I find one of the best uses of stories is to figure out, okay, if I'm trying to sway people to this particular opinion, what's going to be their biggest objection? And then figuring out a story that actually addresses that objection. So let me give you an example of this. So if I'm in front of an audience and I'm looking to get clients uh, and it's all entrepreneurs. One of the things that I found, one of the objections that I had to deal with um, was the fact that not all entrepreneurs like the idea of going out to speak. They're kind of afraid of stepping into the spotlight. So I realized 
to get these people who were ideally potential clients to be interested in me, I had to get them interested in going out there and speaking. So I started telling the story about when I was a, uh, a comedy writer. I was 20 years old. I started doing uh, jokes for this Canadian show that was sort of a, a Canadian version of The Tonight Show. So I, I helped write the monologue and I wrote these jokes and I love this job. And I would spend we used to shoot live. So I would actually sit in the audience waiting for my jokes to come up and then like hearing 300 people laugh at one of my jokes was incredible. And then I'd go home and I'd have it on VHS and I'd play it over and over and over again. So I love this job. Great. Um, unfortunately it was a terrible show. And after the first season, they fired everybody behind the scenes. So I had to get my job back and they hired a new boss. And that boss was a guy by the name of Mark Breslin, who's hugely well known in Canada. He was a former comedian and he created this chain of comedy clubs and he basically booked every comedian in Canada all over the country. So he's very challenging guy to, uh, uh, for me to get him to sort of bring me on because he had access to all these comedians. So anyways, I ended up sending him a whole bunch of jokes and he phoned me up about two weeks later and said, Hey, you know what? I really love your stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Um, I'm going to be in, I'm going to have my job back. And then he said, so how come I don't know you? And I realized what he was talking about because I wasn't a comedian. He knew all the comedians in Canada. I wasn't a comedian. I didn't want to get on stage. And I told him that I said, you know, Mark, I'm just interested in, being a writer. And he said, wow, there's no money in just being a comedy writer in Canada. He said, I'll tell you what, um, Sunday is new talent night down at the club. Come down, do two or three minutes of your material. If you're any good at all, I will book you immediately in the clubs, which is like an amazing offer from this powerful man. And I said, no, because I had no intention. I mean, at that time, I wasn't a speaker. I, I, the idea of getting in front of a bunch of people I didn't know and trying to get them to like me seemed like the most horrifying thing in the world. Sure. So I, I, I said no to that. I said, no, sorry, I just want to write. And he said, Jason, if you're not willing to step in the spotlight, you're not taking this business seriously and you're wasting my time. And he hung up, which is devastating to me. But I was so against stepping into the spotlight, I was okay with that. So I moved behind the scenes in television. And what I started recognizing was that the experts in television, the ones who get all the attention and get all the clients and write all the books, they weren't necessarily the best people in their field. What they were were the people who were willing to step into the spotlight. And then when I became an entrepreneur, I realized that that really applies to every field. And I recognized that Mark Breslin was a visionary because when he said, if you're not willing to step into the spotlight, you're not taking this business seriously. He meant the entertainment business back in the 90s. But I realized now that, you know, we're a world of solopreneurs that this really applies to everyone. And if you're not willing to step in the spotlight, you're not taking your business seriously. Because if you're not going out there and doing talks and getting in front of people, your competition is. And those are the people who are going to get the clients, the attention and everything else. So by telling this story, it immediately addressed that objection of, I don't want to step into the spotlight. And I started getting all of these people wanting to work with me. And almost every single one of them, because I always ask people afterwards, like, okay, what was the thing that changed your mind that made you think, okay, I have to work with this person. And almost all of them have said it was that story. When you told that story, I realized that I had to step up and step into the spotlight. So getting back to the original question is having that effective story around what the major objection is to your sale is the key thing if you're selling an idea or selling yourself or whatever, because it really helps lower those barriers and get, get people interested in what you do. Great. I think that's, uh, I'm going to have to work on my, my, find my own story that, fit, that fits that sort of framework. <laughs> uh, one of the things that, I mean, I work with a lot of clients who are, um, are coaches or looking to get into creating information products or uh, having sort of maybe more of a back end or presenting in there for some part of their business. And one of the biggest objections I get from them in going forward is that they're going to be on, on video or they're going to be seen somewhere. And they, 
somehow think people do generally think this and, and I guess it is a little bit irrational that you do a few videos and post a few things on YouTube suddenly you're going to get mobbed in the supermarket the next time <laughs> you go down there which which isn't really very, very realistic and, uh, and I have pointed out you're very unlikely even if you're quite well known online still quite unlikely to be recognized in the supermarket and, and if you are it's probably someone who's following you anyway and so it's going to be nice and then even then they probably won't want your autograph so it's uh, it's not really a thing to worry about we're not necessarily talking about hollywood level of uh, celebrity here but it is that fear that people have of of putting themselves out there that that, that exposure level that i think people can very much relate to and uh, right now I think there's never really been a more important time to to be online and be be visual and more people are having to do that with with everything that's been going on that that fear is coming up for a lot of people you can see me and uh, you can uh, you know people as soon as people can see you on a camera they can judge you <laughs> <laughs> that's true but you know if if we look at it another way you know at some point every client you have is going to be meeting you for the first time yeah. And they're going to be making that judgment anyways. Yeah, I think it's just the, the scale of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You talked about being afraid of uh, getting up on stage uh, doing comedy. And I, I think that must be one of the scariest things. I mean, people say public speaking is scary. I don't think it's anything like as scary as actually getting up on stage and people having the expectation that you're going to make them laugh. Yeah, exactly. It, because it's one of the hardest things to do. It's something I, I have managed to do a few times accidentally and on purpose, uh, but never actually as a stand-up comic uh, and something that I'd love to challenge myself further with. But humor isn't necessary, it isn't essential in storytelling. It sometimes happens naturally anyway. Uh, and probably for most people, I, I, I generally teach, it's, it's, not, it's not a requirement. Uh, if it happens, if you, it's something, some stories are just naturally funny anyway. To not get too hung up on that sort of side of things and just focus on telling the story. You know what? This is a, this is a really great topic, and I, I talk about this a lot with my clients. Is you know, often we're doing any sort of talk, being able to bring some humor to the audience is hugely valuable, and you know. What we find is if you try and tell a joke on stage, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And, and what happens is when it doesn't go over well, it really takes the energy out of the room. I've even seen that with a Tony, uh, uh, Tony Robbins. He'll tell a joke. If it doesn't go over, the energy is right out of the room. So people become scared of using humor. But what I found is if you take that humor and put it into a story or make it part of a story, it's kind of you know what I would call bomb proof because if you've got people wrapped up in a story and there's something funny in it, or even if you insert a joke in the middle of the story, first of all, chances are for some reason when it's in the story, people are more likely to laugh. We know that, we don't know why, but I think it's just people are in a different headspace, right? Um, but then the second thing is even if they don't laugh, if you have them immersed in that story, you don't lose that energy. They still want to know what comes next. So for those people who are challenged with humor, directing the humor in the story, particularly if it just naturally comes from the characters, what the characters say um, or do, is really the, the most ideal way of, of using humor. And to give you an example of this, it's interesting. I had one client, she was really into knock-knock jokes. Right. And of course, knock-knock jokes for a lot of people, you know, people roll their eyes, right? And she had this one joke that she used in her presentation over and over again, which she thought was hilarious and always bombed. So, and she really wanted to use this joke. So I said, okay, let's incorporate it as part of a story. So we created a story around that I actually found out that it was actually her son was the one who told it to her. So we sort of recreated that story. And when she told it as a story and had her son tell the joke, people started laughing, like really laughing out loud. And she's like, this is magic. It's like, how did this work? It's the same joke, but telling it, in a story coming from my son gets a huge laugh where I don't. And it's, it really is, it really is interesting how our brains tune to almost a different frequency when we're in story. 
and it opens it up to do that. I, I, I think people are actually worried sometimes if you're on the stage and I have this problem, I have a very dry sense of humor. So I can say like really outrageous things with a totally straight face. And I realized as a speaker, that's a bad thing because people don't want to feel like they're laughing at you. So if they're, if they're not 100% sure it's funny, they won't laugh. But if you tell it within a story, it's like they don't feel like they're laughing at you. If they laugh at the wrong time, they don't feel quite as embarrassed by it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that was something I discovered in the world of hospitality, that you can almost get away with just about anything if you say it with a, uh, with a straight face or just a nice smile. Uh, you can say <laughs> yeah. some quite outrageous stuff and people are like, okay. Yeah. But then they go away and think about it. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a, it's kind of an interesting, but yeah, it definitely works from from a stage as well, uh, and I get that. With uh, with the construction of the story, then it's not just how you construct a story. One of the biggest challenges that I have as a speaker and a storyteller is editing myself. So mm. you got your story, and you need to take out uh, the bits that just don't add anything to it. It's all about say editing is all about what you take away, right? And uh, yeah. And so what are the bits that people need to take out of their story to, to make it flow better and, and edit it down a bit? Yeah. So again, if we go back to that basic form of story, which is the arc, and again, you can sort of picture a smiley, a smiley face. Real life often doesn't work like that. There's ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. So, you know, if we chart real life, it may be very jagged. So what we want to do is take out those jagged edges. So again, you know, if we're looking at a character and we have a problem and the problem gets worse, in real life, what may happen is the problem gets better and then it gets worse and then it gets better and it gets worse. So what we want to do is we want to sand down those rough edges so we take out the pieces that don't conform to that nice, smooth, smiley face. People dislike that because they feel sometimes they're being dishonest, but here's the thing. Stories are a selective telling of facts. You can't tell everything that ever happened to you. So it's selecting those facts that move in a nice and smooth manner. And sometimes that means moving things around in time. So maybe you had a good thing, bad thing, good thing, bad thing happened. So maybe you put those good things together in the story and put the bad things together in the, in the story. So it makes that nice smooth arc. Does that make sense? It, it certainly does. Yeah. You know, I have a, uh... I have a 22-year-old niece, she won't appreciate me saying this, but she probably won't listen anyway, so it doesn't matter, um, who, uh, when she's telling a story, her stories are really, um, I said this, and she told what she said, and then they said that, and I was like, and they were like, and that, that's how the story goes. <laughs> and, uh, and it really is just a, a retelling of exactly what happened and who said exactly what. Uh, and so to, to make that a bit more interesting, but someone like my niece would need to work on a bit of turning that into a story. So it doesn't, that isn't necessarily just the temporal flow of it. It's the yeah. the heart of it and, and what actually, what the outcome was of it and the, the learning from it and the, the transformation, right? So it doesn't just get to be, you're not just telling the history exactly as it happened, like you were watching it played back. You're getting a version of it that condenses it all into um in, into a short time period to, to make it make sense and make it engaging mm -hmm. as well. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I was uh, learning recently about uh, and realization was about how um, TV and films particularly will condense a time period in, you look at how the time scale of when a film generally happens is a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But if it was weeks or years, you know, you, it would be boring very quickly, which makes a lot of sense. And, and that on a much smaller scale with our stories as well, right? Yeah, and I, I'm a huge, I, I love classic films. And one of the directors I particularly like is Alfred Hitchcock because he has this really great conception of story and of time. So he has some films where literally the story plays out um, exactly within the time frame. So if you watch uh, a film like Rope, it's, I, I think, like a 90-minute film, and it plays out in real time. And, you know, he shows how to do that. But then he has a lot of other films, like, you know, for instance, North by Northwest, where, you know, things get, certain things get condensed so quickly, and so much information is sort of left out. There's some of Hitchcock's films that 
people will say, well, it's not really believable because I don't know why this happened or why that happened. And then when they talk to Hitchcock about it, it's like, yeah, I could have put that in, but that's boring. So I took those things out. Right. Um, so, you know, watch films like that can, can really help you with figuring out that, that whole time thing. And another thing that people need to be aware of, something that can often make your story more powerful is once you have it in a linear fashion, what I'll often get my clients to do is figure out, okay, where's the action? Where's the most interesting part of the story? And move that first. So it's usually the middle of the, of the story where the action is. So you move the middle to the beginning. You start telling that to get people's attention, that action. And then you go back in time, fill people in on how you got there. And then you sort of end that part of the story. And then you go into the inside and the conclusion so sort of kind of beginning in the middle is something that you know even the greek tragedians used to do and it, it can often be a very powerful storytelling technique yeah from, from your own experience maybe from your own story pool or, or from people you've seen or watched or, or even worked with what would be uh, an example uh, of the stories that you've been maybe most impressed by or you think work best in in these sorts of environments Wow. Um, here's the thing. I don't know if there is any real sort of universal story that works really well. I really think that your story really depends a lot upon your audience. And the more that you can make that story relatable to your audience, the better. So one of the things that I try and, and look at, if I'm telling a story to people who may not have gone through the same experience is I try and figure out, okay, what are the universal themes here? And sometimes I might say, you know, you may not have ever been in ICU on a ventilator, but you know, have you ever had a dream where you couldn't breathe? Have you ever had a dream where you totally lose track of time? So you find those universal elements within the story that you can bring that, your audience can relate to. Because I really think that the success, a large part of the success of your story is going to depend on, can your audience relate to it? And where I've seen the biggest failures at, at conferences in particular are when celebrities get up and they talk about stuff that happened to them, but they don't relate it to anything else that could happen in other people's lives. It's like, you know, wonderful. I'm really glad that you went to this drugstore and, you know, a director found you and you suddenly became famous. But, but what do I learn from that? What do I take away from that? Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's something that we really have to be aware of is what is our audience getting out of the story? Interesting. For some reason, I was just thinking that a few years ago when I was uh, in Vegas on, on my honeymoon of all things, and, and we went to see Cher, and we took a friend with us as well, and uh, part of her bits in between her, her singing was just telling stories. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there was a, really a particular purpose other than I think she likes to tell stories. <laughs> But she's so good at it, and, and I just didn't want it to stop. But it's like, keep, just keep talking. I have no idea necessarily where <laughs> this is going or what it's really about. But it was uh, she's a completely engaging storyteller, not just a, not just a, a great performer as well. But, I've uh, actually heard that about Barry Manilow too. Um, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of his music, but I'm actually really eager to to see him live because the more I find out about his. Um, his shows, the more interesting they seem. Because he had, he had an interesting career. He started as a songwriter writing jingles and stuff too. So he tells a whole bunch of stories about the music industry and about his growth in music. And it's interesting too, because from what I understand, he again makes it very relatable to the audience. So he'll play a song, he'll tell a story, and, you know, again, he makes it funny, he makes it relatable, and it, it ends up making a really good show, much as I'm sure the Share show did. Uh, you'll end up being a fanello yet. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that's great. Now, I think one thing that I do want to, to get into is not just about creating the story, but delivery. And I think that's such an important mm. part. What, what kind of pointers or advice on delivery do you generally work with or can you maybe condense because I'm sure there's so much but yeah condense some of the sort of key things that people should pay attention to yeah I, I think in telling the story the most effective way to deliver it number one is you know like all speaking you need to know your material backwards and forwards and not memorize it but 
internalize it. So really understand that story and tell it, you know, practice it over and over and over again. And one of the reasons you do this is so that when you're on stage, you're not thinking about your story. What you end up thinking about is the energy that you're sending to the audience and the energy that you're giving back. And to me, this has become my, by far the most favorite part of me being on stage when I'm telling a story is, you know, looking at the audience, if I can, depending on whether the lights in my face, but even if I can't look at them, I can generally get a sense of that energy. So once you know your story is being flexible with it and playing with the audience, you know, so if you say something and it gets a laugh, making sure that you make that laughter or not make that laughter, you wait for that laughter to subside before you start up again. Comedians have known that for years, performers, you don't step on a laugh, but I see speakers do that, especially when they're surprised by people laughing at something. And the funny thing is when you pause, it makes people think, oh, that was supposed to be funny, and even more people laugh. So just really being in that moment, feeling that energy back and forth with the audience, not rushing to tell the story. That's like the worst thing you could do is rush to tell the story. Be in that energy and give each piece what it deserves in terms of your emotion. So if you're telling a sad part of the story, obviously you don't want to be smiling and happy. You know, you want to sort of be in that, that emotion and take people through that roller coaster. Don't forget the, the, the details. Give yourself space. Create that energy with your audience. And to do that, one of the most important things that I find is to give yourself space within the talk. So if I'm creating, if, if I have to speak for 45 minutes, I make my talk about 35 minutes or 40 minutes. I always underwrite to the talk because that allows me that time to breathe with the audience, to use that energy. Sometimes I'll also go into a digression as well. Um, so for, for comedic digressions, this is something that, that, that comedians do well. And you can also do it in your story too. So I'll give you an example of one that I sometimes use. I have to be careful because it's somewhat sexual, but you know, this is where you sort of gauge your audience, right? So um, I talk about this time when I was in the airport um, and I'm going to the speaking gig and I have really bad arthritis in my hip. So I have to, I end up taking this painkiller before I get on the plane. And I talk about the moment where I can feel that painkiller hit. And I say something like, and it just feels like I've got this wave after wave again and again. It's just like, I just have had 12 orgasms, I think. And if the audience laughs and I've got the right energy, then I do a bit of a digression. I say, well, I say I think because I'm a guy. So how would I know what 12 orgasms in a row feels like? You know, bigger laughter, hopefully. And then again, little digression. Again, you know, not even in my best years. So having space for those little pieces that you can sort of delve into, especially if they're, they're little humor pieces, where you can, again, get that sense of the audience. And if it goes well, you know, okay, I've got like another little remark I can add. Oh, that gets even more laughs. Well, here's another little remark. So, yeah, giving, giving yourself that space, I think, is really important. I think this is great. And, uh, <laughs> and I, honestly, I feel like I could talk to you, talk to you all day. And I, I want to make sure I stay respectful to, to your time. And I do definitely want to get to hear maybe one of your favorite stories. But before we get to that, is it okay if I ask you, we talked a bit about people having to be online now, especially with everything that's going on. Are there any differences or things people maybe should be aware of in presenting, telling their story uh, and selling their story online uh, in a virtual meeting as opposed to uh, from a platform or in person? Yes. Yeah, so I find as a storyteller, virtual meetings to be challenging when I'm telling a long story in, in particular, because I speak about stories, storytelling, and often I use longer stories to highlight examples of what I'm talking about. Sometimes I've got stories that will last between 10 and 15 minutes. It's very hard to tell a 15 minute story when you're on a webinar because people are so distracted. So here's some of the tips that I've found doing virtual presenting. Number one, I tend to keep my stories in particular shorter. Um, 
I will more be more likely to use slides and photos on a virtual presentation than I would in person because it gives people again something to focus on. And that's if you can find the right images, for instance. Yeah. Um, so those, those are sort of the two key things. I, I, I find the biggest challenge is, again, that energy. When you're used to being in front of a room, you can feel that energy from the audience. You know when you have them, you know when you've lost them. And sometimes when you're presenting virtually, it's very challenging to know that sort of thing. So I, I try and just make everything simpler for virtual presentation. And then if I have a chance to do question and answer at the end, then that's when I tend to sort of get into things in a bit more depth. Yeah, it can, it can be a bit like watching a comedy show without the laugh track, right? <laughs> exactly. What's, what's, what's worse is when you're, when you're the comedian or, you know, when you're doing something funny or, or even just trying to really wrap people's energy up into that story, it's very disconcerting when, when you're not getting anything back right? If everybody's on mute and sometimes you don't even see people or what's even worse is when you're looking at people and they're not looking at their camera, they're looking away and you don't know if they're engaged or if they're not engaged. Uh, all of those things can allow you to lose your energy and you don't want to do that as a speaker. Now, the other thing that you can also do is, and, and I've been experimenting with this as well, is do your presentation standing up as if you were in a room, right? And at that point, chances are you're not going to really be able to see anybody's face. Um, but if you are, if you're comfortable enough with that, that's that's a way to to sort of retain that energy because when you sit, your energy automatically becomes a little bit different. I'm sure Cindy probably talked about that too when we were talking to her. Uh, she, yeah, I, I can't remember everything she mentioned, but yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> she packed she packed a lot into a very short time there. Um, but yeah, and that's great advice. So it's something that we've been getting people to do in my, in our online Toastmasters meetings, and and we actually just run one of the competitions for Toastmasters online, which is a, a completely new thing. And of course, we're getting people to stand up and essentially deliver as they would if they were a live competition. And uh, so it does require a bit of you know, positioning your camera the right way so that you know, it's not like, <laughs> look up the thing, yeah, exactly. a great view of your chin or right up your nose or anything. Uh, so you, you want it to, to look all right, but also not being too far away from a microphone to pick you up as well. It's like, there's a, there are some, some things to consider when you're doing that. But uh, it was one of the, when I first started doing online presenting in the form of webinars and, and group coaching, which uh, we've been doing for years now, that was one of the first things I was told, like, start, stand up, uh, that will make a, already make a difference to your energy. I wasn't on camera for that, so it was mm -hmm. even, even easier. I didn't have to worry about the, I just had to have my microphone. Um, but yeah, it, it does make a difference to your energy and to what, to what you deliver and how you deliver. Do we have do we have enough time? Do you have enough time to spare to tell us one of your favorite stories? Sure. Um, and this is an interesting story because you know all of my stories. Again, I'm a big believer in messaging, and I think one of the things that we can sometimes do with stories is sometimes find more than one message in them. So this is um, a true story that happened to me, and depending on whom I tell it to there's some different messages. So I have a short version and the message in that is all about how even when you feel at your, um, even when you feel powerless, even when you feel helpless, you have this incredible ability to change other people's lives. So the short version of the story, and I'll actually show you where I end the story in a a couple of spots. So the short first of the, of the story is about that. And the longer version of the story is really about how with us as speakers, it's so important for us to share our stories because we never know who's in the audience. We never know what that person is that's going to get out of it. You know, we, we may think, okay, who's interested in this? But it's amazing how any story can potentially change another person's life. So the story is all about you know, when I was 18 years old, I've actually had Crohn's and arthritis all my life. So, so Crohn's is a disease of the, uh, of the gut. And when I was 18 years old, I actually had a perforated intestine. I didn't even realize it, but I was spending Christmas in the hospital. So while everybody was out, you know, having their you know, turkey dinner with cranberries, I was sitting alone in the hospital. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was scared. I was by myself. 
And suddenly there was this, I was sort of overcome with this intense pain and my fever started shooting up and you know, everything started to slowly black out. I remember the sound of doctors and nurses rushing in and, and yelling, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And not being able to say anything. And then suddenly it was blackness. And I wake up out of the blackness. Um, and my sister is next to me and she sees me open my eyes and she tells me I've just had this operation and that everything's going to be fine. And I go to speak to her and I realize I can't speak. And I also realize I can't move and suddenly I'm aware of all these machines going ping and beep and because <sighs> I'm in intensive care and I've got all these things attached to me, including a ventilator, which, you know, as most people know now is, is basically this hard plastic tube that goes down your throat that helps you breathe. But because of this, I literally can't move. All I can do is stare at the ceiling and I, there's still, I remember burned into my retinas is this fluorescent light fixture that's flickering. <laughs> and that's all I could see. And I find out that I'm going to be in this room for like several days and I can't speak. I can't move. I can't turn my head. I don't know what time it is because I can't see a clock and the lights are on all the time. So I start worrying. I'm literally going to go crazy lying here recuperating. So I figure out, okay, I need some sort of a goal. And I recognize that I could tell my family was really worried about me. And what I didn't realize was things were still pretty dicey. They weren't quite sure I was going to pull through or not. So I had my family was incredibly worried. And I thought, okay, I've got to help them somehow. How do I do it? And I realized that the one part of my body that I could move was my wrist. So I could give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I thought, okay, that's all I have. But that's how I'm going to communicate. And it was incredible in just being able to do this one simple thing, how I was able to communicate with my parents so I could hear them walking in, I'd give them a big thumbs up, and I could hear this sigh of all of this, all of this pressure and worry coming out of them. And I remember my dad turning to my mom and saying, you know, look who's happy to see us. And they started talking to me. And it, it, it's kind of funny when all you can do is do the thumbs up or thumbs down. If you have good timing, you can really make people laugh. So I started making my parents laugh and I thought, okay, this is great. And when the doctors and nurses would come in and have conversations, I'd do the thumbs up and thumbs down too. And they'd start to laugh. So here, here I am in intensive care with all these little rooms and you could hear people sobbing and there's people dying. But in this one little room, everyone's laughing and it's because of me. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. I am so helpless right now, but I can still do this. I can still change people's lives. So later on, when I got out of the hospital, I started speaking to people who had various types of chronic illness who were very sick. I started using this message that no matter how helpless you are, you can change people's lives and you should always be looking at what you can do for other people. And inevitably people would say, well, you know, how can I do that? I don't have a job. I don't have this. I don't have that. So I would tell the story about my thumb and people would instantly get it. Now, that's where I, I tend to end the story for that audience. But for my storytelling audience, I do a little addendum to the story. And I mentioned that, you know, being on the road, telling the story over and over. At one point, I go to this hospital fundraiser, which is not too far from my house. And I tell a version of this story. And this older woman comes up to me afterwards, and she's practically crying. And I said, you know, can I help you, ma'am? She, she, she takes me and she grabs me by the shoulders and she goes, oh my God, it is you. I said, excuse me? She said, you wouldn't remember me, but I was the nurse in the operating room the night that they brought you in. Wow. And to be honest, I, I didn't believe her, but she knew all the details. She knew my surgeon's name and everything else. I was like, oh my God, this must be the woman. I said, how did you, like, this is something that happened 25 years previously. I said, how did you remember that? She goes, well, because it was Christmas day and I thought I'd have to watch a young man die. But she goes, obviously you didn't die. And she said, I had no idea who you are when I came here. I just came to the fundraiser, not knowing there was going to be a speaker or who you were. But she said, I have to tell you, you have totally changed my life. She says, not only do I realize that when I was a nurse, I had such a, a huge impact on people's lives, but I also realize that now that I'm retired, I can still have an impact on people's lives. She said, you had no idea how lost I was since I've been retired. I've had no purpose. I felt terrible. I lost my faith in God. I felt suicidal, but now I don't. And I want to thank you for that. And I was like, wow. 
what a humbling experience. I had no idea, obviously, when I was presenting who this person was or what sort of an effect that I had on them. And that's something we always have to keep in mind as speakers is our stories reach people. And there may be even just one person in the audience who needs to hear your story at exactly that right time and can make a huge difference. Incredible story. Amazing. Thank you for, thank you for sharing it with us as well. Absolutely transfixed. <laughs> it was really in the story as well, which is, is absolutely what that's uh, it's about too. Thank you so much. And, Jason, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I want to sort of um, draw things to a close because uh, otherwise I'll just carry on all day. <laughs> but, uh, you, you very kindly offered, uh, offered a few things to, to listeners, to people who are listening to, to the podcast. Can, can you share with us what they are? Yes. So I have a really great giveaway and it's all about story, storytelling. So if you go to jasonreed.org, uh, you'll find a little landing page there and a sign up where you can get my signature storytelling tool, which is a PDF showing you the steps to tell a story. I also have a couple of audios in there too, about going into more depth about how to create great stories. It's absolutely free. Just go to jasonreed.org, put in your details, and that will be sent to your uh, email box. And the other thing that I have as part of that or as separate is that you can also sign up for a free 20-minute session with me, and we can talk about your stories or your talk, and it's no obligation at all. And uh, you can find that by going to my website, uh, powerstorymaster.com. At the very top, it says, click for your free session. And that will take you to where you can book it. And I would love to hear from you, no matter where you are in the world, what your stories are. I would love to help you out. That's fantastic. And definitely a generous offer. One that uh, you, you might be finding me booking in for a free 20-minute call. <laughs> As if I haven't had enough of your time already. Honestly, I feel like I've been quite greedy today because uh, we said we were going for 45 minutes <laughs> to an hour. And I think we're already over that. So, uh, so thank Oh, wow. You. Uh, You're welcome. It's been an incredible conversation and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope, I hope you have too. To, to wrap things up then, um, is there one thing that you would like people to take away from what they may have heard today or to do based on what they've heard today? If you speak, you need to tell stories and your stories need to relate directly to your audience. So if you keep those things in mind, I think those are sort of the top level things that you have to remember. Stories are way too powerful to ignore. They're a great way to entertain an audience, but also influence an audience and take complex ideas and make them simple. Fantastic. Well, for, for those of you listening, you will find links to the Jason's download and to, uh, to his website. All the links will be in the description below, so you can go and check that out. Please do and take advantage of these very generous gifts. And uh, brains for me to say thank you, Jason Reed, for giving us your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been, uh, honestly, I could go on for at least another hour or so. <laughs> but uh, uh, hopefully we can, we can connect again sometime in the future. But Jason, thank you. Thank you so much. You are welcome, John. This is my life. Obviously, I love talking about it. And uh, this has been just a real pleasure. So thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure you like and subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. If you think you'd make a great guest on the Loki podcast, or you know someone who would, or you have any feedback that might help us to improve the show in the future, please email me directly, john at presentinfluence.com, or visit the Present Influence website, or our LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter accounts. We look forward to hearing from you and connecting with you there, and seeing you again on a future episode of the Loki podcast.